Welcome to the Grief Cocoon podcast, where you'll hear open, honest, and thoughtful conversations about grief and loss, death and life. I'm Gabby, your host, and I speak to different creatives, academics, and everyday people about their experiences of grief and loss and how they've dealt with it. This podcast was recorded on the sacred and sovereign lands of the Bunwarung and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to offer my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people listening today. In this episode, I speak to Annie Bolitho, who loves the possibilities of friendship, art making, ritual and community on the lands of Nam. She has a doctorate of creative arts in writing and is author of Death, a Love Project, a guide that helps anticipate common practical and emotional demands that arise around end of life. Annie has trained with numerous great teachers on meeting the psycho-spiritual challenges of our times, including Thich Nhat Hanh and Joanna Macy. She practices in the Soto Zen tradition with the Jigoshuan Zen Buddhist community. Annie has done a lot of activism around climate change and the environment. So I start by asking what first inspired her love for nature? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I come from South Africa and so nature as I knew it there was incredibly beautiful out of town, you know, Mm. and I did go to game reserves and see giraffes and elephants and tall waving grass and all that kind of thing. But I grew up in a very suburban environment. Mm. And I suppose when I came to Australia, I didn't find it that attractive, I must say. So (laughs) I don't really think nature is what's inspired me to be an activist. It's mainly been around social justice and the recognition that if you haven't got an environment you're going to have some really serious problems for human beings. Hmm. Hmm. So did you come from a family of social activists? Yes, I did. Um, My parents were involved in anti-apartheid politics for some time. And my father was an environmentalist in his understanding of the world, even though Probably that word hadn't been invented. But he worked as an engineer for a big city council. And he was worried about climate change when I was a child. So that's a long time ago. It's not as if we, you know, Mm. haven't seen it coming. And I suppose, you know, I think about that a lot coming from South Africa, that so many people were kind of claiming that they knew nothing was going on when things started to change. But of course, you know, it's a matter of where you put your attention. So did you always know that you would do something? I mean, because I guess activism could be about anything. There's so many different issues that you could fight for in terms of you know um, progress but what was it about the environment that got you I suppose you know coming from South Africa I might have got involved in anti-apartheid politics because they were big in Australia at the time but it was kind of like I put that behind me and 
I was very interested in getting safe, really. I came from a very unsafe society, so I certainly wasn't kind of thinking I'm going to be an activist at any stage. I was just like, Mm. let me just live a nice, safe life in Australia. Mm. And um, perhaps it was through Buddhism that I got interested in how the interconnectedness that life depends on was being so threatened, particularly by... um, nuclear power and nuclear Mm. weapons at the time. That's probably where I made my entree. And then later I became involved in rainforest activism because there was a sudden awareness of how much rainforest was going and I was living in an area where that awareness was very strong. And then later, I suppose... The thing that really hit me when I started working with people in that movement was that I did have connections to my father and his interest in the environment. He was particularly interested in water. I ended up going to India and working for... I had three spells there working with an amazing man who was a Mahant, a religious man. He'd had that temple in his family for 12 generations and he was an engineer. So he knew everything about water pollution and Mm. how seriously the River Ganga, which was where we were, was affected. But I suppose his story is one that really interests me now. People get so down from climate anxiety, Mm. ecological crisis, and they lose that sense of enjoyment of the world. And he was amazing, you know, like he knew everything about um, pollution. He knew the measurements, the levels. Part of being a Brahmin, as he was, he needed to bathe in the river five times a day. So at dawn and at different points during the day. And he bathed in the river with complete delight. And he knew exactly. Mm. And he didn't get sick that often either compared to what you would expect. Wow. And how, I guess, did that, did you incorporate some of what you learnt from him in your a own A great life? deal, yes. He always spoke about understanding things from both banks of the river, mm. the river of culture and art and humanities side, and then the bank that was of science and technology, and he absolutely exemplified that. And that's been of very strong interest to me, how we can bring together arts and culture and complex technical information. Mm. And I I know that you've also sort of looked at how to talk with kids or you're you're interested in also how you can talk about like the next generations about the environment and climate change. And I know, you know, there might be a lot of parents that are experiencing that anxiety about 
the future for their children, like your dad was, mm. in a way. Um, what's been your, and because it just, I, I'm kind of asking this question because it feels like what you mentioned there about bringing the two worlds together might be also relevant for children and for for mm. young people as well. That's so interesting. I picked up the book that was on display at the entrance here when I came in and it's about climate and it's clearly directed at children and I just looked at it and I just thought, this is way too much, you know. It's Mm. very... I think the more you can keep things simple for adults and children, the better it is, you know. Mm. And I think at the moment we're in no doubt that time's short and we need to do slightly more than perhaps we thought of doing before. So, you know... A lot of people say, you know, I do the recycling, which is fantastic. But I'd really encourage any parent to be on a newsletter of an organisation like Environment Victoria, which sends out emails asking you to do things to influence the political landscape. You know, that's how we come not to have new gas-fired things and new gas mines. It's through people's power lobbying and um, I think that's very important to show children your engagement. Can Mm. I read a poem? You asked me to bring a poem. Yes. Yeah. So um, this is a young woman in the States called Gabrielle Gelderman who got together a number of her peers. I think she's at the time was 18 and they made these poems together. They're called found poems. I don't understand what the process was, but I think this speaks to your question. I've lived... Oh, sorry. The title is To Be Alive Right Now. I've lived only 18 years. And write as we write the world where I am in a gas station in Nevada is having a heart attack. Economy crashed, the world collapsing. Money wasn't real. It didn't make sense to use oil. And in retaliation, they still traded it. Even there on the ocean floor. I got so mad, visceral, leaning out of a helicopter with a megaphone, yelling. I guess children don't understand lobbying. We came home and I couldn't cry for months. To fight a fight that feels as if it has been lost hurts. Mm. Wow, that's a powerful poem. And that sense of someone at 18 sort Mm. of coming to an understanding that there are all sorts of ways to influence change and lobbying is one of them and I think parents can show children themselves lobbying through writing letters, through attending meetings, strikes, marches, going Mm. to galleries where you can see that people have expressed their concerns, not just about climate change. There's so many things that come together in the current dilemma we're in. Hmm. And 
how do you, I guess, is that one way that people can deal with their anxieties and their worry about what's about climate change and about um, the environmental destru- mm. destruction, do you think, mm. by actually doing something? Look, I think everyone deals with anxiety and grief their own way and mm. The one thing that I've noticed with climate is that people can get really isolated with their feelings about it, just like any other grief. It feels so huge and unmanageable and they feel alone with it. And I think it's really important to know you're not alone. Mm. And one of the ways to do that is to join forces with others, even though you might feel like an idiot and nobody in your family's ever done it before and you just don't want to be alone in those circumstances. There are always ways to reach out and I think it's very important. Hmm. I guess speaking about mentioning grief, you know, what, you know, because I think climate grief or some people call it eco-grief, mm. like it's not as well known or acknowledged I think even though people might feel might have symptoms of it mm. do do you know like what how can people recognize that they're experiencing climate grief well I'm not sure what it's like for others but for me I have certain sort of triggers Coming down here to meet you, I cycled through the park and there was this couple with a child in the autumn leaves. I mean, there's just nothing more beautiful. Mm. And then that just kind of goes, oh, you know, and I think, God, what's coming for mm. those people? And I think that is something that I recognize in myself, but other people may have other things that make them feel really sad. And, of course, this happens with other griefs as well, that you might just find that you are trying to get away from it all the time, that you just don't want to know about it. Mm. You kind of hope it'll resolve by itself. And, you know, I think that thing of avoiding knowing what going on although it may seem like it's really what you need to do and of course you know taking anything in moderation is important but I think if you turn completely away it's not helpful because you know it's a reality it's a really, really difficult and inconvenient reality that we face. And I think if you can find some way of just being together with another person and talking about it, I think that's a really positive move. Mm. And what if you want to talk about it with someone, like with family members Mm. or friends, but you're not sure whether they will... I guess, be open to it, you know. And that's a high likelihood, you know. Mm. It's not as if people are welcoming of this bad news. I think the majority of people would 
really just not wanting to be happening. So I think it is Mm. a difficult topic to have conversations about. And I think always really important, you were talking before about how you bring together information and beauty and arts and culture and things. I think having that in mind is important to stay with things that are important to you and things that you have a heartfelt feeling about and start Mm. small. I always say that when people ask me how to talk about grief and death, start small. Don't try and have the massive conversation first off. Mm. Do you have some examples of starting small? Practical mm, things. Ah, <laughs> mm. uh, look, you know, I'd probably find it easier to suggest things in relation to death and grief and loss mm. and climate because I'm so immersed in it. I don't have so much trouble. Um, I think just relating relatable things so. I was at a family picnic yesterday and it was such a celebration, you know. I Mm. cannot think of a moment where I would have inserted climate change. (laughs) You know, even though, of course, it was a hot day for this time of year and Mm. so on. So, you know, immediately you're thinking, okay, you're not doing it at a big event where people are celebrating. You're wanting to have an intimate conversation Mm where you can be quiet together. And, you know, you might have seen something. You might have a little story just saying, this is what I felt. Mm. And if they didn't want to hear that, you can't force them to think the way you're thinking because it's not about thinking, it's about feeling. Mm. And that's what I think is so difficult for us to put across in the best of circumstances. We're a very informational society. It's so much easier to talk about stuff than it is (laughs) to say, wow, you know, I saw this little kid in the park today and I just felt really worried. That's all Mm. you need to say. It's not, you don't need to push on after that. Yeah. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. So maybe it sounds like just even sharing observations or, you know, for example, if you've been reading a book or mm. if you saw a an ad or a movie or something that mm. might relate to that, that you want to share with others and seeing how they respond. That's right. And, you know, whereas three years ago there wasn't much in the public domain, now there's a lot, you know. I'm always seeing stuff, reading stuff. Um, The fact that that book was the front book in a display at a library, I think you wouldn't have seen that even a year ago probably. They would have said, oh, no, Mm. people are scared of that. We can't talk about it. Mm. And Yeah, and speaking of, you know, being scared to talk about it, especially with kids, what can parents do to 
address that with that because I mean kids might be feeling sometimes kids will also feel that anxiety and and the grief because mm. you know kids usually have an even stronger connection to nature and animals mm. and the environment and then if they you know that once they get old enough to understand what's happening then they too will feel anxious is there any way a good way to talk with children about how they might be feeling I oh, look you know I think that's I'm not a parent, so mm. it's probably not a great topic for me to launch into. But, <laughs> um, you know, if you're thinking about kids, you're obviously thinking in very concrete ways about caring for nature. And it's entirely appropriate that children under five or even under seven or ten shouldn't be seen to have undue responsibilities for caring for the environment. Of course, parents want to help their children to understand that, but I think for some parents that's really difficult that they know how bad the situation is and at the same time they're teaching their kids to care for the environment. You know, like really I think walking the talk, demonstrating what matters is important in family life generally and it goes for climate change as well that if you're thinking also about anxiety and grief when children raise a subject themselves mm. it's good to be able to address it to the best of your ability but also to be able to say I need to think more about that let's talk again or something like that mm. Mm. yeah sometimes you know you don't know I guess you can say that I'm not sure I don't know exactly you to... don't have to know mm. you don't have to pretend to know mm. is it? <laughs> Annie I know that you work with groups as well mm. like you do group workshops and community-based work and I wanted to I guess ask you know what you see as the the importance of of connecting with others around climate grief or um, finding a community space and and being with others Mm. that are experiencing this yeah I don't know that you can specifically set out to do that at this time I don't Mm. think there's anything that's really set up for people to have those kind of conversations much. I mean, occasionally you'll see something where someone is offering a specific thing. A psychologist friend of mine did that. She, on a very hot night once, she was really worried and she put something on the Darabin parents' Facebook book group and it turned out that there were hundreds of other people having the same worry and she ended up putting on a workshop and um, you know occasionally you'll see that but I think the important thing is to just decide what's important to you so you know for some people it is important to educate others they may have that skill you know for me as an educator as a 
I don't actually think of myself as an activist. I think of myself as someone who's concerned about the world we live in right now. Um, you know, I just think we've got to spend as much time as we can doing things that matter to us, not frittering away precious time mm. doing things that seem like they're going to make me look good or be an important someone, you know. We need to actually decide what really matters now. And for me, I love creativity. I love helping other people to express themselves creatively. And, you know, the fact that I can combine activities that involve using products that would otherwise be wasted with botanical materials that you can make inks out of and helping children. I <laughs> did an activity at Melbourne's Farmer's Market recently and the kids were just in ecstasy. <laughs> and you know, that's kind of really getting together and saying, this is a beautiful world. Let's make the most of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of see that, you know, seeing the beauty in nature and also caring for it kind of go together, mm. you know, like mm. building, uh, developing an appreciation for what's around and, and the natural environment can also feed into wanting to do something. Mm, mm. So is that, I guess that's maybe part of the role of art and mm. creativity. Yeah, mm. definitely. There's mm. something about people just leaving the home behind for a moment, you know, mm. whether it's just to be outside gardening or kicking leaves or whatever, I think, you know, can be quite constrained when you feel any kind of worry and you're inside, you'd rather go outside and let nature exert a bit of influence on you. <laughs> and I know there's, there's, there is already, you know, a lot of research now to, that talks about the benefits of being outside and spending time in nature. Um, and so, so do you think that generally people... I guess, understand the relationship between our existence and... I don't think that's uh, important for me to understand, really. Mm. The only thing that's important is for me to understand myself and what can make me close in and get smaller and smaller and smaller and see the world as a more tight and hard and difficult place and those mm. things that can make me soften and open up and see a wider world and the people and things in it and connect to them. I think that's very important for each of us to understand individually mm. and then that influence extends to other people. Mm. And is that part of what your book is about, the book that you wrote? Oh, look, my book's called Death, A Love Project, and mm. um, 
I wrote it from my experience of death in my personal life, from working in that field and with a sense that people are often very um, occupied with the feeling side of approaching end of life, death, the after period, all those things are very emotional and feeling times. But what I observed was that there were many, many practical things that people need to do that they're not prepared for. And it's much better for the feeling side if you're prepared on the practical side because Mm. then you can be a lot calmer, you can get people together in a better way and so on. So that's very much my motivation Mm. when I wrote that book. And, um, you know, if I think of connecting what is in that book to this topic of climate change, you know, I suppose one of the things is don't try and ignore the reality. It's mm. it's there. It's not going to help. You're only going to suffer worse if you deny and push out of the way. Another thing is that everything in difficult times goes better if you're willing to take a pause just to stop and consider notice what's around you, who's around you, and get together than if you're rushing along. There's no doubt about it. Pausing helps. Mm. So that's another very um, important message of that book, and it's one I think can help people when they're confronting a very difficult reality in the world situation just to sit down, take stock. And I suppose the third thing I'd say is that life is very, very mysterious. We think we can understand life and death. We can't. The best we can do is to get into some kind of relationship with it and help others to get into some kind of relationship with it, we will not understand it. It's not possible. It is too massive a mystery. And so, you know, in this climate thing, there's a lot we know. Mm. And there's stuff we don't know as well. And getting comfortable with the idea that we're just very small, But not in a powerless, pathetic sense. We're small in terms of a very large mystery that we can respect and grow into an appreciation of that can help us day by day. Hmm. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I think, Sometimes people or we have moments where we realize that, like, or where we do, um, you know, sort of see the kind of epic world that we live in and we realize mm. that we are a tiny part of it. But then 
you go, you know, some people go back into the week where they they have deadlines and then they're stressing about every day, you know, things that they need to do or... Um, well, of, of course, you know, we don't. And I think that's one of the big traps in our society. And, you know, we, <laughs> we try not to do this, but we live in a very, very dualistic society all our thinking is black and white good and bad happy miserable you know it's Mm. these we don't think about the gray and the fact that all those things can coexist Mm. you can live in a big mystery and have a deadline you can really be at your wit's end with sorrow and something can make you laugh five minutes later. You know, it's it's not like one thing excludes the other. Hmm. But, uh, have you found a way? I guess it's just I was thinking about like how people can maintain that that idea of, of or that knowing of being kind of part of this larger world and universe well we can't you know it's Mm. just not we'd be um you know that's a kind of godlike thing to keep Mm. all those things in mind we're not we're just (laughs) little humans doing our thing and I think the important thing is to take time just Mm. to allow for the fact that there's a lot that needs our time we may not be the most reflective types I'm quite a reflective person I think you are as well lots of people Mm. are more oriented towards action and that's just how it is we have different tendencies but I still think that having some quiet time is what enables us to connect to these things Do you feel like there's something or a topic in in this realm that people don't often speak about that is, I guess that's one of them, taking stock and pausing and and Mm. reflecting, which Mm. I think people, I mean, you know, don't always make time for. Mm. Um, But then also I think dealing, you know, once you do take a pause and, and you do start to feel what you're really feeling about the environment and what's happening, then that becomes uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of planning myself. And if you make a commitment that you plan with that um, commitment in mind, so if you've Mm -hmm. got a commitment to your family, you put aside time for that, you've got a commitment to your work, you put... You know, if it happens that you decide, I am concerned about climate change, Mm. I'm making a commitment, it doesn't matter how small or how big your action is, but if once a week you write down, I'm going to do this, I don't want to guarantee, but I think there's quite a strong chance that you'd feel better as a result. So I think just 
vaguely thinking about it isn't very helpful. It's not empowering. Mm. The feeling side can become overwhelming. Whereas just a simple practical thing of I'll call ex-politician's office this week. Take three minutes. It's done. And you maybe even have an amazing conversation with the person at the office and you feel good afterwards. And I think that's what we're very much lacking in the general population is more kind of little actions that altogether do make some difference. Hmm. Do you think it helps to for people to research a little bit about what's happening in their local area? Definitely. I think that's hmm. such a great resource, you know. It, all councils now have to be concerned about this issue. They've got hmm. stuff on. You meet local people. You may express yourself around the issue in a way that's got to do with food or providing catering or whatever it is. I think that's such a great idea to act locally. And, you know, you were talking about doing a planting in your Mm -hmm. municipality. We have plantings on Darabin Creek and... It's great to see how good people feel after those plantings are done and that kids Mm. come down and do something really nice that they can go back and look at. Mm. Yeah, and I've noticed there's also a lot of sort of repair cafes as well and, you know, where instead of, I guess because part of the issue is that mass production and Mm. people Mm. is continuously buying stuff and then throwing it out or you know not using mm. it and yeah um but there yeah yeah you might find a repair cafe in your area that you can just mm. make an, a, a booking to have your toaster fixed instead of buying a new one and they're fun activities as well we have a food swap in our neighborhood where people bring extra produce that they've grown and mm. No money changes hands. People just, oh, wow, I want rhubarb. (laughs) Someone else will want lemons. You know, it's just a nice way of, and again, it doesn't take too long. Mm. It's just quick and then you feel good. And I think the more we feel better about things, the more likely we are to want to do more of them. It's hard to change habits of being kind of in a space of general apathy unless you continually doing stuff where you get some reward of feeling good. Mm. Mm. And like I said before, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Just a small little thing can be mm. really positive. Mm. I think it reminds me of, you know, that's actually I, I can vouch for that as well because I've just recently kind of started to know about more local activities happening like the tree planting days and uh and there's like a sustainability group that runs week monthly markets where they they recycle you can bring in different things to recycle you know they have sessions around different topics related to um, sustainability yeah yeah it's so fantastic and Mm. 
I can go down to Darabin Creek and I can see trees that I planted 10 years ago. And it's amazing. They are so big. It's really <laughs> exciting. I highly recommend tree planting. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there are people who really feel out of their depth with it and that's just not something they're going to do and I I think I have a piece here about someone who talks in therapy and I think you know that's another option some people may really want to talk privately with someone so can I read that piece mm. so this is by an girl in the UK called Nadia Lyons. She says, how was your week? Not great. I wring my hands. Not great. I'm not working as hard as I could be and my sister won't talk to me and my mum has a cold and I'm terrified she'll die and I can't sleep at night because I'm up at night tumbling into terror about our approaching climate catastrophe. Usually my therapist replies by listening, quietly, watching, not saying much, until the inevitable 20-minute deconstruction of my suffering at the end of the hour. And sometimes, if I'm crying, she'll tell me that nobody is going to die. This time she simply nods. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a very beautiful evocation of a shared reality through mm. putting something out to another person. Mm. And I guess just being heard, you mm. know, mm. is really important. And as opposed to having you know being trying to make yourself feel better straight mm. away you know mm. that's i think mm. that's a part of what therapy is you know great mm. for just having someone listen mm. because i think i've noticed like you know we we even you know for people that are actually doing things f f to work with you know the environment and and to prevent some of the the things that are happening, they also struggle with a lots of mm. they would because knowing when you know more, you mm. realize the gravity of the situation. Mm. So then you you must feel also like that strong kind of sadness as well, mm. or mm. you know some might feel anger, and and mm. so there's always, I guess, I feel like it's useful to maybe deal with the grief while you're also working mm. on doing practical mm. things. Mm. I think, you know, there's going to be different things for everybody, but I didn't mm. want to overlook that kind of circumstance where someone actually feels like mm. they're not coping because they're so worried about a whole lot of things because no one's ever worried about one thing, <laughs> everything all. As Can that not. young woman describes, they will pile in at once and mm. I think it's great to see assistance if that's the case mm, yeah because mm. I think about people that um yeah do have sort of challenges with their everyday kind of within their mm. family and sometimes the environment and climate change can can really take a back seat because 
there's things that are immediate. Exactly, the immediate, yeah. you know, it's a luxury in a way to be able mm. to spend the time that I do, which is not much, and to participate in the activities mm. I do, you know, I think really it's so important to acknowledge that a lot of people, that's, there's no way that those kind of um, activities and actions are possible. Hmm. And so if for someone that is in that situation where um, they are concerned but they also are dealing with a lot in their personal life or in their immediate family or whatever it is, what's, I guess, a way to... I think, look, you know, self-care is always number one. You know, if you... Mm don't have time to eat as well as possible, sleep as much as you need to, mm. and generally look after yourself, hopefully get out in nature from time to time, you've got no hope of affecting anything. You're only going to make life difficult for other people. So mm. really I think that's always the thing to have in mind that by taking that basic care of yourself you're taking care of a bigger world as well mm. Mm. it's it's not probably not helpful to feel guilty if um, you know you you want to do more but you can't and then kind of spiraling so I think mm. it, it is good mm. nice to hear that you know if you just start with yourself and mm. and and it's, you know, it's not thinking about yourself or, you know, dwelling on your own thoughts. It's literally eating well, sleeping well, mm. taking a walk. Those things are what self-care is really about, especially sleep, you know. I think mm. that's what suffers for anybody who's experiencing worry of any kind and mm. not sleeping is much much more difficult to deal with than anything else I can think yeah. about you know you just somehow you know taking those necessary steps of not looking at your phone before bedtime and you know doing some quiet calming activity those are important. Your sleep is so important. It's so much more important than thinking, I should be this, I should be that. Mm. But, you know, that's easy advice to give when you're in the situation. <laughs> it can be really, really tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think people do need to have an awareness that whilst you might not see all the positive moves that you would like in society at the moment, there is a very strong awareness now by a lot of people that things have to change. And I was reading something from the World Health Organization where they say that they regard climate change as the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century and that... You know, the whole problem of worrying is massive. Mm. 
Mm. You know, people are feeling that loss, that helplessness, that frustration, and, you know, that kind of inability to affect change. And, you know, to have a major organisation like that saying, this is affecting people, I think we should all know that it's on the agenda and that there are ways we can play a part in making a difference, not just to the broad situation, but to our own well-being through, you know, not getting stuck in that helplessness, that Mm. feeling that it's just all too much. You know, it's fine. Let it feel all too much at times, but also find a moment to do something that's going to make you feel like you're contributing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because if you can't see... You can't see a way to do something about what you're concerned about. Mm. Then I think that's when you fall into helplessness and Mm. uh, disempowerment and just, you know, feeling awful about Mm. everything. So Um, did you find your local activities by just searching the web or did someone tell you? Yeah, I actually had a friend. Well, at the beginning of the year, I thought, I really want to start becoming more conscious mm. of anything I buy and where it comes from, what it's made of. And I, I don't want to contribute to the waste. And I, mm. so I started already kind of, I'm now researching a lot mm. more of mm. about what, what I'm buying if I need to buy mm. something. Mm. But then a friend of mine also said, oh, you know, there's this um, sustainability event happening every month. Do you want to come with me? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, yeah, of, of course I'd like that's, to learn. I think that's a mm. great place for mm. us to wrap up because it's just such mm. a story of how things can work well. And you wouldn't want to go to a sustainability event by yourself. You've, you've got to go with a friend, don't you? I mean, mm. some people are brave, but it always helps to have someone alongside you when you're doing something new Mm. and yeah and and then on um, actually on instagram i discovered a local rubbish pickup group that meets up every i think it's every few months or i thought it was every week but they they meet up and in the mornings on a sunday morning and they just pick up rubbish you know as a as a group (laughs) and so i found that as well and i thought that's you know i definitely want to be a part of that I love hearing this. Mm. I just think it's so fantastic because it, it gives you a buzz, doesn't mm. it? We've got Darabin Hard Rubbish Heroes coming up <laughs> in a very short time where just local people have got together and they've said, we can't let hard rubbish mm. just go to the tip. We've got to do something with it. And they mm. do the most beautiful stuff. Yeah. And that other group, I don't know if you've heard of the one... Um, Great Big Hug, which is a fantastic group that recovers all baby equipment. They have a massive Mm. warehouse in Broadmeadows and so many people who need baby equipment can get that stuff that otherwise would just be chucked out on the pavement. Mm. It's just like, yay! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's there's people Mm. and, and, you know, 
groups here and there doing really great mm-hmm. stuff. And and it is about doing that simple thing, you know, but doing it with others mm-hmm. as well, I mm-hmm. think, makes it even better because along mm-hmm. the way you could, you know, talk with people mm-hmm. and get to know mm-hmm. other community members, but you're also being you know useful and and yeah doing yeah, something yeah. yeah oh i love it before we wrap up okay. I, I wanted to go back to something mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier which was about you mentioned buddhism and then you mentioned the man the brahmin man mm. and i know this might be a bit of a left of field question yeah yeah <laughs> but how do you think maybe one's spiritual practice or beliefs can either, you know, can help with either bringing comfort to people in these times or either getting people to actually care more for Mm. the environment? I know it's a bit of a big question. It is a big question. And, you know, I have to say, I've just been in Sydney. I was amazed the number of churches that had stuff about climate change in signs on their walls. You know, it's like, obviously, in that religion, people are picking up what needs to be done, spreading the word through using their wall and everything. I was pretty impressed. Mm. (laughs) And, yeah, I think with spiritual traditions, you know, maybe... The bigger thing is that feeling of connectedness to the whole is probably what helps people most to be able to not be knocked over when something difficult happens to them or when circumstances are difficult. I was extremely lucky as a young person to... um, spend quite a bit of time with the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh Mm. who died last year and you know he was extraordinary and one of the things I remember him saying was you need to be the one as if and he had a lot of experience with people escaping Southeast Asia as refugees on boats. You need to be the one on the boat who, when seas get high, doesn't freak out. You need to be the one who's there. I mean, I only remember that quite Mm. sort of generically. He's probably written it in a much more eloquent form, but... That made a huge impression on me to think, well, how do you become the one who's not knocked around by emotions and high winds and everything? Mm. And, you know, that's obviously been a very important part of my journey to discover how to become someone who can be steady in difficult circumstances. Mm. It's so relevant to all kinds of experiences Mm. and losses as Mm. well, you know, Mm. in grief. Um, Mm. When emotions are high and intense, Mm. it is hard to be that person, Mm. you know. And that's not to say that you Mm. don't have feelings Mm. and that you don't 
see the circumstances clearly, but maybe you've just got a bit more capacity to breathe and pause and those kind of things that mm-hmm. instead of rushing forward, which is where we end up yeah, tripping comes, up. <laughs> <laughs> comes back to pausing and mm-hmm. allowing things to be. Mm-hmm. And I guess from that place you can find something that you can do mm-hmm. about that situation. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that, you know, you're going to necessarily get it right the first time. It's been a huge learning for me in my life that it's fine to make mistakes, you know, like, so what? That bothered me a lot. It bothered me hugely to make mistakes. That's why it was hard for me to have conversations about grief, about death. I didn't want to make a mistake. What if, what if once I finally, finally realize it's actually okay, you can just try your best and do better next time, maybe. That thing of just doing your best is so much better than constantly striving to get it right. It's got to be perfect. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it never is perfect, is it? <laughs> so true. Mm. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Thanks for this so conversation. Much. <laughs> it's been great. If you found this conversation valuable, then it would be great if you could leave a review or share it with a friend so that more people can find this podcast. Thanks for listening.